Well, there are certain things that when a, when a small child does it, it's kind of cute. But when an adult does it, it's not so cute anymore. You know what I mean? Uh, I'll give you some examples. Setting up a lemonade stand in the neighborhood, right? It's, it's kind of cute when a, when a four-year-old does it. Not so cute when a 34-year-old does it. Um, deciding that you are just totally done with walking, right? You've had a, a toddler before that just kind of collapses in the floor and you got to drag them along through the store. Uh, kids, kind of cute. Adults, not so much. Snatching whatever they want, right? Like if you're sitting there holding uh, something to eat and they just literally take it out of your hand and start eating it, it's kind of cute when a kid does it, not really when an adult does it. Um, spitting out food that they don't like, right? Uh, when you're at the table and, and a kid decides, I don't like broccoli, and they spit it out on the, on the plate, you kind of will overlook that. Not really kind of cute when you're, you know, 48 and do that. Uh, what, wearing whatever you like to wear, right? So if you've ever seen your kid walk out of the house with uh, a Batman cape and a uh, bright orange shirt and some purple shorts and some rain boots and a fireman's hat, you kind of go, okay, that's what they decided to wear today. Uh, but when an adult does that, it's just kind of weird, right? Or uh, charging you to do household chores, right? Uh, you know, when a kid does that, you're, you're, you give them, a, you know, a, an allowance. But when you're adults, you kind of just have to do the dishes and you don't get paid for it anymore, Okay. Uh, or uh, one of my favorites is riding in the grocery buggy. You know, when you're going through the, the, uh, the grocery store, and it, when a kid does that, it's neat. When you're 63 and riding in the, in the grocery buggy, it's not so cute anymore. Now, some of you may still do some of those things, but at some point you have to be an adult, right? And the same is true in our spiritual lives. There are some things that we may still do when we're spiritually babies that we look at and we go, oh, that's, that's still kind of cute. They're, they're a baby Christian still. But as we grow older and as we mature, there are things that aren't so cute when you've been a Christian for a while. And the author of Hebrews has, has been laying out a, a theological argument throughout his letter showing us why Jesus is better. And today, as we, as we come to chapter 5, verse 11, he, he begins exhorting and, and pressing his listeners to have a better devotion because of it. And so if you have your Bibles today, I'd ask that you to stand in honor of God's word if you're able. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 today as we continue this series called A Better Hope, and today we're going to be challenged to have a better devotion. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, the Word of God says, we have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk and not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he's an infant. 
but solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Thank you. You may be seated. Today, as we take this passage of Scripture and apply it into our hearts in the year 2022, this, this word that God gave us thousands of years ago, say, how, how are we going to live this out today? The action step for us today is this, to keep growing in your faith. That's the challenge for you today, to keep growing in your faith. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, we're going to see uh, the problem of immaturity. As Christians, he says that we are, we are called to grow into the likeness of Christ. We're called to put on the mind or to put on the, the attitude of Christ. We're called to imitate Christ. And it's this process of sanctification, this growing in Christ's likeness in which we're maturing, in which we're uh, advancing in our faith. But the problem, however, is that not all believers are growing like they should. So in verse 11, he says, we have a great deal to say about all of this, and it's difficult to explain because you have become too lazy to understand. The author says, I want to go deeper with you. But you're not mature enough. Anybody in the audience still eating baby food? Anybody? I was well, I'm sure that somebody was going to raise their hand today, but maybe I don't see anybody. Nobody's eating baby food anymore, right? That's what you do when you're a baby. When, you know, when you're first born, you're, you, you, you drink milk, and then you, you move on to, to baby food, and then you move on to solid foods, but they mash them up really good so that you can eat them. And then you start to eat uh, as your teeth come in, you start to eat, uh, you know, more solid food. Eventually, you're eating steaks, and you're like, hey, this is what we've been missing out on all these years, right? And so, nobody gives their three-week-old a steak for supper. And on the other end of the spectrum, we don't expect our 20-year-old to be eating baby food. But that's the problem that the author is addressing from a spiritual standpoint. He's saying these are believers who ought to be grown up. They ought to be eating big boy food and big girl food, but they're not. And because of that, they're missing out on the abundant life that should be theirs as followers of Christ. And he gives us a few indicators of this immaturity for example one indicator of the immaturity is the hearer's inability to teach in verse 12 he says although by this time you ought to be teachers you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again he says look you you've been a Christian for 10 years now you should be teaching babies by now but instead we're having to go back to kindergarten with you we're having to repeat the elementary teachings of God with you. And you know what happens when, when older believers fail to mature in their walk? Is that we lack teachers for new believers. He says that there's a, another indicator, a second indicator of immaturity. Is that these hearers are still needing milk and not solid food. In verse 12, he says, you need milk, not solid food. But you're not babies any longer. He says, you ought to be eating steaks now, but you're still on the bottle. And this is a problem. 
You ought to be able to feed yourself now. But we are still spoon feeding you. You haven't moved beyond the very basic things. Verse 13 and 14. Everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature. So when we only drink milk, we miss out on lots of really good food. You miss out on steaks. You miss out on, on sweet potatoes. You miss out on Carabas chicken brian. You miss out on peach cobbler. You miss out on all kinds of really good food in your life. And if you remain as an infant in Christ, you miss out on many of the great blessings of a mature faith in Christ. He gives a final indicator here of immaturity in their lives is that they were unable to distinguish between good and evil. Verse 14, those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. He says, you're not showing the signs of a mature walk with Christ. You're still acting like a baby. You're not showing maturity. You're not developing in spiritual disciplines. Because through practice and through living out your faith, you begin to produce fruit and you begin to show discernment between good and evil. He says, but you haven't shown that yet. This is the problem of immaturity. And so as we continue in this passage, we see secondly that the author of Hebrews makes a plea for maturity. He puts a call before this group of Christians. He says, look, let's go for it. Let's grow up together. Let's press on toward maturity. Let's go deeper. Verse 1 of chapter 6, therefore... Let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. Let's leave the elementary and let's go on to maturity. Now, one commentator writes that he is not dismissing these teachings, but he's regarding it as so well established that the urgent need is for a fuller appreciation and application of that teaching. He says it doesn't call for a progress away from a simpler form or content of preaching, but for a personal surrender to God's influence. So in other words, what he's saying is that this doesn't mean that the elementary teachings are unimportant and that you need to be searching for some esoteric knowledge. He says, no, that's not, that's not what we're talking about here. What he means by spiritual maturity is that you should be practicing these basic truths consistently in your life. I grew up playing basketball. Now I'm coaching our boys playing basketball. And when you first begin to play basketball, dribbling a basketball is really hard. I mean, you got this ball, and, and, and if you ever watch little kids play, they, they keep their head down the entire time, and they watch the ball bounce up and down like this. And then uh, they stand in place, and eventually they get to where they can move and bounce the ball, but they keep their head down because they can't take their eye off of it. But eventually, through practice and through learning, they you teach them, and I do this all the time, keep your head up as you dribble and so you they keep their head up and they learn how to use their peripheral vision and keep an eye on the ball while they are looking and they see people moving and know how to pass the ball to somebody that they are not even looking at and this happens how through practice 
through growing in maturity. And that's what, it, that's what it looks like. It's that you've practiced these spiritual disciplines so much that it's now your character, that it's now second nature to you. And the author of Hebrews then lists these pairs of doctrines or, or pairs of Christian teachings that he considers to be basic truths for these Christians. In verse 1, the first that he, coupling that he mentions is of repentance and faith. He says, we ought not to be laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith in God. He says, I, I really shouldn't have to explain to you over and over again that salvation comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ. He says, you keep continuing to look back to a life of working to try and earn your salvation. And you should know now that Christ's death and resurrection are your only hope for salvation. You should know that you have to repent of your sin and of these works. He said, we should be past that now. I shouldn't have to be saying this to you over and over again. The second coupling that he mentions to them are baptism in the Holy Spirit in verse 2. He says, uh, or teaching about ritual washings and laying on of hands. He's saying you should understand the symbolism of baptism by now. When he refers to washings, he's talking about the background of these Jews who, in Judaism, used all sorts of different ceremonial washings as part of their religious practice. He says you should know now that baptism is different than that. That baptism is a public profession of your faith in Christ. It's a public identification with Christ. It's an outward symbol of this inward change that Christ has done in your heart when he shed his blood on the cross and you believed upon him as your savior. You don't need to do ritual washings anymore. He says, why do I have to keep explaining that to you? When he mentions laying on of hands, He's referring here to the Holy Spirit because immediately following baptism, the church then would lay hands on a person that symbolized the impartation of the Holy Spirit into their hearts. And he says that I shouldn't have to teach you over and over again about the role of the Holy Spirit in your life, that as a believer, he dwells within you and he points you to Christ and he uh, enlightens you to the word of God. And you should be submitting your life to his leading every single day. He lists another group there, the resurrection and the judgment in verse 2. He says you ought to have an understanding that you're going to be raised up like Christ on the final day. That there will be a judgment that everyone will face before God. That heaven is the final resting place for the redeemed of the Lord. Hell is the final punishment for those who don't believe. He says I shouldn't have to keep explaining this to you. And the author of Hebrews calls his hearers to press on in their maturity. He says you should know these things. You should be living these things. You should be bearing fruit of your faith. You should be going deeper in verse 3. And we will do this, he says, if God permits. And so there's this plea to them for maturity. He's shown them the problem of what an immature life looks like. And I'm urging you, he says, to press on in maturity. The third thing that we see in our passage this morning 
is that the author of Hebrews calls this church to consider the consequences. To consider the consequences. He gives them a strong admonishment against passing on God's plan for you to mature in your faith. And hence, passing on God's blessings of a close walk with Christ. He really presses into them here in verses 4 through 8. And the background for this entire passage is that Old Testament story that he's been, he's been alluding to for several chapters now. The story about the wilderness generation that had fled from Egypt under the leadership of Moses and who came into Kadesh Barnea on the edge of the land of Canaan. But because of unbelief, it says that they failed to enter into the promised land. And the Bible says that that generation missed out on the blessings of God and their bodies fell in the wilderness. And so the author of Hebrews has now, for a few chapters, been calling his hearers to consider that generation as he keeps comparing them to that wilderness generation. And he warns them that their fate is going to be the same if they don't choose to trust in Christ and follow him, if they fail to believe. That if they choose to turn back, that they're going to face punishment. They're going to miss out on God's promises just like that generation did. And so he says here, I want you to think long and hard about what this decision would mean. I want you to think long and hard about the consequences of this decision. If you would turn back and begin to practice Judaism again. He says, are you really going to abandon Christ? If you do that, he says, what is your salvation then? If you do that, what is your atoning sacrifice then? If you do that, where is your hope? He says in verse 4, for it's impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the power of the coming age and who have fallen away. Now this is a difficult passage of scripture. We've been saying this from the beginning of this whole series that Hebrews is a really difficult book. And some commentators believe that the author here is addressing believers who fall away and who lose their salvation. And we talked about this a few weeks ago in, in a previous passage, that there are some denominations who, who believe that a person can lose their salvation. And we, of course, do not believe that based on the rest of the Word of God, based on passages of Scripture like the one that says that there's no one who can snatch us out of the Father's hands, or passages that say that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And so we look at the whole of Scripture and we go, the Bible clearly teaches us that we are, we are unable to lose our salvation if we are true believers in Christ. And so other, other commentators then say, well, the author here must be addressing unbelievers that are maybe even part of the church. They may even think that they're Christians, but then they're falling away and they're revealing that they never were truly saved to begin with. And that certainly falls in line with our belief that you can't lose your salvation. But the question still remains, is that what the author of Hebrews is talking about in this passage? I mean, there are 
there are other passages that describe that. People who think that they have tr- that they are followers of Jesus and and who don't really bear the fruit and prove that they were never saved to begin with. For example, Jesus tells a story about those who come to him saying, did we not do all these things in your name? And he says to them, depart from me for I never knew you. And so the question is, is that what the author of Hebrews is talking about here? I think when you look at this passage of scripture, he gives a really compelling description of a believer in Christ. I mean, listen to how he describes them. He says that they're enlightened. He says that they've tasted heavenly gifts. He says that they've shared in the Holy Spirit, that they've tasted the word of God, that they've experienced the power of God. It sounds a lot like a believer to me. And what we've been saying all throughout this letter is that he's addressing believers. The occasion of the letter is that he's speaking to Jewish Christians that are considering a return to Judaism. And so I don't think that all of a sudden he says, hey, I'm not talking to you anymore, I'm talking to others now. Well, one might say, well, what about passages like the one with the wheat and the tares? You know, the tares look a lot like wheat until the harvest comes, and then you realize that they're not. Well, look here at verse 6, and he says to them, it's impossible to renew to repentance. And when I look at that verse, it tells me that he's talking to believers because unbelievers have never repented to begin with. So they can't be renewed to repentance. You can't be born again again, right? And that's the point that the author is making. In verse 6, he says it's because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. He says we can't, you don't do that. He says we... We don't crucify Jesus again. That would mean holding him to public shame because you've tasted all the goodness of salvation and then said, I'd rather have something else. And so I think if there were those that were part of this congregation that were thought that they were saved and and had never really trusted in Christ for salvation, never truly were saved, what he would say to them is, hey, it's time to repent and believe in Jesus for salvation. But to those who are truly saved but aren't maturing in their faith, which has been the context all around this passage, he's talking about maturing in your faith. He says it's time to start acting like it. Time to start acting like you're a follower of Jesus. In verse 7 and 8, this is what he goes on to say. The ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and produces vegetation that's useful To those for whom it's cultivated, receive a blessing from God. That's what we've been talking about all throughout this, this letter to the Hebrews. It's about receiving the blessings of a relationship with God. He says, but if it produces thorn and thistles, it's worthless and about to be cursed, and at the end it will be burned. He says, when you're growing, when you're, when you're fruitful, he says, you're walking in God's blessings. But when you're not growing and when you're producing thorns in your life, your worthless, worthless works will be burned up. And there's a strong parallel here between this passage and one that we mentioned a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you'll turn there in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. There, the Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth, According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, 
and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. No one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and costly stones and wood and hay or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he'll receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he'll experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so he's, here he's talking about fire, a refiner's fire, a judgment that's placed upon the work that's evident in a person's life. This is talking about people that are saved. In verse 11 it says the foundation is Christ. There's not another foundation. He says, but what you build upon that foundation matters. If you build on that foundation worldly things, or if you build on that foundation fleshly things, it will be revealed on the day of judgment, and it will be consumed with fire. In verse 15, it says, if anyone's work is burned up, he'll experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Sounds a lot like the ground that's being described in our passage today. In verse 8 of our passage today, he says, If it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Since it's close to being cursed, it's not cursed. Just like in the other passage, it says, He is saved, yet so as through fire. So we've been saying here that he's telling these people to consider the consequences. So what are the consequences then? If we're not talking about losing your salvation, what are the consequences? The consequences are that you're missing out on abundant life. The consequences are that you are missing out on the blessing of a relationship with God. It's that you're missing out on the promises of God in your life. The consequences are that people are not hearing the gospel because you're not being obedient. The consequences are that people are not being discipled in their faith because you're not growing and reproducing in your faith. The consequences are that our children and families are not walking with God because you haven't been living it out. The consequences are that the children repeat the sins of their fathers. The consequences are that you're suffering in the consequences of sin that you keep holding on to in your life. You, you see, it's about missing out on the things that God wants to do in your life. It's about wasting your life. It's about laying in your deathbed with a heart full of regrets of all the things that you should have done in your life but didn't do. And so he says to continue growing in your faith. Consider the consequences. The last thing that we see in our passage is that we are called then to consider our commitment. In this new paragraph, beginning in verse 9, he's drawing a contrast between that preceding one where he was giving them a strong warning. But here, he now is giving them strong encouragement. Before, he says, don't be the one who misses out on the promise of God because of unbelief or because of unfaithfulness. Now he's saying, I believe that you will go forward. Verse 9, he says, even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, 
in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. He says, we believe that you will have a better devotion than that. In the past, then, this, this group is one that lived on faith in the promise of God. They, God promises to us that he will forgive all who call on the name of the Lord for salvation. God promises to us that he will give life that's abundant to those who follow Christ by faith. And these Jews had placed their faith in God. Just like the disciples who left their nets or the disciples who left the tax collector's booth. They had left their world behind and had followed after Christ. So why now would they consider to turn back? The author of Hebrews is reminding them that they have lived by faith and that they should continue to live by faith. In verse 10, he says, For God is not unjust. He'll not forget your work, the love that you have demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. He says, you've been living for Christ. You've been serving Christ. You've been serving others in the name of Christ. You've been living according to the word of God. You have been ministering in the church. You've been reaching out into your community. You have shown faith in God's promise all in the past. So don't stop believing now. And he's urging his hearers to push forward. Verse 11. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end. He says, just like you had faith in the promises before, show that same diligence now. Don't stop moving when you reach the edge of the promised land. That's what that generation did. Don't be like them. Press on in your faith. Sure, doubt is going to lay a trap before you, and troubles are going to try and to ensnare you, and persecution may come against you, but you are to keep your faith steadfast in God and in his promises. Verse 12, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and through perseverance. So here he ties together the warning that he gave them at the beginning of this passage back in verse 11 of chapter 5, where he says, you have become too lazy to understand. Now he says to them, don't become lazy. Don't be that. You have been slow to understand, but let's change that. Don't be sluggish. Don't come crawling across the finish line. He says, imitate those who live strong until the end. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I am making every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, I forget what's behind and I reach forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize that's promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, he says, let all of us who are mature think this way. Think like that. To be like a marathoner who has run 26.1 miles. And that last .1 mile, they sprint to the finish line. They don't fall down and wait for somebody to pick them up and, and drag them across the line. 
Be like those who show faith, who show patience, who show perseverance, who inherit the promises. Continue to show faith in the promise of God. Continue to grow in your faith. Because it's cute to ride in a grocery buggy when you're two. But it's not when you're 62. And so Christians, this morning, the action step for us today is to continue growing in your faith. And perhaps this morning as, as the word of God has been uh, preached and the Holy Spirit has been working in your heart, he has shown you areas of your life where you are still like a baby. And it's not cute. It's time for you to mature in your faith, to grow in your faith. Stop holding on to childish things, but to press on and to persevere. Be those that can teach, to be those that can disciple, to be those that can be leaders in the church. And so perhaps during this time of invitation, you want to spend some, some time in prayer at your seat or, or here at this altar, calling out to God, committing to God to say, God, I want to press on in my faith in you, to continue in my walk with you. There may be others here this morning who don't have this relationship with Christ. And as he's been talking about these elementary teachings, this is, this is where you begin. It's by putting your faith, faith like a child, in Jesus, the Son of God, who came to earth and lived a life of perfection, a life without sin, because you and I can't do it. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all of us have been, are like sheep that have gone astray and that the penalty or the wages of our sin is death. And we're all doomed to death because of our sin. But instead we can have forgiveness of our sin. Instead we can have life, a life that's abundant. We can have a life that's eternal through faith in Jesus. Because he died in our place and because he rose again, conquering sin and death on our behalf. And today that can be realized in your life by faith in Jesus as your Savior and as the Lord and King of your life. And so that might be a decision that you need to make in your heart. And there's going to be leaders here across the front to pray with you, to talk with you about this decision today. And as we stand and sing in a moment, I want you to encourage you to come and to make that decision today. There might be others that God has called to become part of this church family. Maybe this is your first time here. Maybe you've been coming for a long time. But you've never joined this church congregation. You've never become part of this church family. And we need you. We want you to become part of what God is doing in this church and what God is doing through this church, in this community, and around the world to make his gospel known. And so perhaps you want to make that decision today to come and to become part of our church family. But however God is speaking to your heart today, now is the time for us to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Let's stand with every head bowed and every eye closed. God, we thank you for your word today. Lord, for the call to a better devotion. God, we pray, Lord, that we would answer the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to press on in maturity, to grow in Christ's likeness, to move off of milk and onto solid food, 
be those that would be teachers and disciple makers, imitators of those who inherit the promises. So Lord, I pray that you would that you would move in our hearts this morning and draw us closer to you. God, I pray for those who are here that need to make that very first step today to begin this journey with you, to begin this relationship with you, that today would be the day that they would repent of their sin and that they would turn to Christ, that they would call on him for forgiveness and salvation. So God, I pray that you would work in our hearts in this time, that we'd be obedient to respond in Jesus' name.